Hello, and welcome back to Reformed, a podcast on the criminal justice system and criminal justice reform. This is part two of our fourth episode, where we've been discussing the joys and difficulties of reentry. When it comes to reforming these systems, many conservative criminal justice advocates and federal government policies, like the Smart on Crime initiative started under former Attorney General Eric Holder, focus on the reentry process and recidivism rates as two of the most significant opportunities for carceral reform. The National Institute of Justice, a branch of the Department of Justice, says on their website, quote, recidivism is one of the most fundamental concepts in criminal justice. It refers to a person's relapse into criminal behavior. Recidivism is measured by acts that resulted in rearrest, reconviction, or return to prison with or without a new sentence during a three-year period following the prisoner's release. In fact, most efforts to reform the criminal justice system today, whether from legislators or think tanks, focus on recidivism as one of the main opportunities for progress. Citing popular statistics, for instance, the fact that 67% of formerly incarcerated people are rearrested within three years of their release from incarceration, policymakers frame America's mass incarceration crisis as one of repeated criminality. However, a growing body of research indicates that while the readmission of formerly incarcerated people is a significant driver of mass incarceration, the widespread focus on recidivism is misleading. The majority of formerly incarcerated people return to prison because of technical parole violations, rather than they're committing new offenses, which means recidivism is not closely correlated to repeated violations of the law, but instead it's a function of difficult terms of probation and lack of economic and social opportunity. Parole is when an incarcerated person is released from detention early and kept under supervision. Parole requires a person to meet with their parole officer and satisfy a range of requirements. These requirements include remaining in a certain predefined geographic area, getting the officer's permission before changing jobs or residences, being consistently employed, and abstaining from alcohol and drugs, among other restrictions. While these limitations are well-intentioned, for many formerly incarcerated people, following the conditions of parole can be extremely difficult. Accidentally violating the geographic boundaries can result in rearrest, and the schedule of parole meetings can make it difficult for a formerly incarcerated person to plan the rest of their day if meetings are irregular or officers run late. Here's what Mark Howard, director of Georgetown's Prisons and Justice Initiative and professor at Georgetown University, had to say about some of the reentering citizens that he's worked with. There's one um, who he's been involved in some of our um, programs on the outside and spoken to Georgetown a number of times, Vincent Greco. I knew him when he was first in prison for the last of his 34 years in prison. And I saw him the day he was getting out and I was bringing a Georgetown group of students on a Georgetown uh, on a tour of the prison. And he actually spoke to us while he was on his way out. He was he'd already left the kind of inside part of the prison and was in this kind of in-between spot when we were leaving. And he spoke to us for about five minutes and it was very emotional because he was about to get freedom for the first time in 34 years. And then 
I think it was five days later, he was in my classroom speaking to the same students. And that was really incredible. Uh, and then I've also been with him along the way for reentry. And there were a lot of ups and downs, and there was a major down when he had a technical parole violation that was complete nonsense, uh, where the parole officer had approved of something. It had been, been snowed out, and he requested it to be changed for a different day. The parole officer approved it verbally on the phone, but didn't put it in the system. And then the GPS went off, and he was violated and sent back in for 57 days, just waiting a hearing to, to clearly show that it was a, a mistake. Um, there's another student, um, Marcus Lilly, who goes by Hakima, and I saw him on, I think, maybe second to last day or something like that. I talked to him on the phone on his last day. He called me, really nervous, asking for advice and, and for what to be ready for. And then I saw him. We had lunch in Baltimore, I think, maybe two or three days after he got out. It's really special to be part of that process of seeing somebody's life really change and, and there's a pivotal moment I think where you get to just make sure they're on the right track because it's one thing to imagine it in your mind for for a prisoner um, what it's like to to come out but it's another thing to actually do it and it's often a lot harder so that's what I kind of try to prepare them for is to just to be ready to absorb the bumps and weather the storms employment represents one of the most difficult requirements of parole. As I mentioned earlier, huge stumbling blocks exist that prevent formerly incarcerated people from finding work. Since mass incarceration primarily affects low-income neighborhoods where jobs are typically scarce to begin with, most people on parole re-enter a workforce with very few low-skilled job openings. Moreover, Black, Latinx, and other people of color are overrepresented in the criminal justice system. Once they leave that system, they face not only employers' biases against formerly incarcerated people, but also racial bias. These systemic issues, along with the erosion of labor markets and fear-mongering about crime, make finding and maintaining gainful employment very difficult for people with criminal records. Though the struggles of reentry are significant, there is also huge opportunity for reform. Budget cuts have significantly reduced the availability of prison programming, including education and counseling programs. Today, government officials and prison employees focus their efforts on short reentry programs, which provide support to formerly incarcerated people just before and just after their return from prison. However, these programs provide little in terms of long-term job training, emotional skill building, or necessary rehabilitation. These short-term programs are deeply appealing because they're inexpensive and provide additional support at a critical transitional time for formerly incarcerated people. But budget cuts and harsh attitudes towards criminal offenders leave prison staff and legislators, even the most reform-minded among them, struggling to address the needs of growing numbers of people with dwindling resources. In other words, we could expand programming 
to vastly improve outcomes for formerly incarcerated people. Recent research from Harvard Kennedy School's Criminal Justice Program and the Columbia University Justice Lab suggests that reducing the number of Americans on probation and parole would drastically reduce mass incarceration. The researchers argued that probation and parole programs grew vastly beyond their intended scope and that formerly incarcerated people, especially young black men, returned to the prison system in huge numbers for technical parole violations. By reducing the number of people on probation and parole, reducing fines associated with those programs, and reinvesting the money saved into rehabilitative programs within jails and prisons, the researchers believe that policymakers can drastically reduce the number of people sent back into the prison system on technical violations. Back in 1981, Supreme Court Justice Warren Burger said, quote, We must accept the reality that to confine offenders behind walls without trying to change them is an expensive folly with short-term benefits, winning the battles while losing the war. It is wrong, it is expensive, it is stupid. While Berger was speaking about changing individual behavior, his quote feels prophetic. Under the current system of incarceration, we confine offenders behind walls and then release them without trying to change the factors that led to their initial offense. In fact, parole and restrictions on formerly incarcerated people often make their lives even more difficult once they leave incarceration. Add to that the dead time spent in prison, years removed from the workforce and the rhythm of daily life, and the picture is bleak. While politicians and the public may believe that they're winning battles against crime, they're losing the war against the causes of crime. Marcus Lilly also walked me through the initial days after his incarceration, and told me a little bit about the plan he had for reentering society. For me specifically, it wasn't that difficult because it was something that I was determined to do on my own while I was incarcerated. I made those, I reached out to those people and made those networks. Now, um, I'm trying to phrase this in a way, um, now, I'm not an exception to the rule. You know, it's a lot of people that's way more intelligent than me that's incarcerated. Um, but I, I know I was just focused on never coming back in prison. So I reached out and did those things myself. However, you have a lot of guys that are not at that level, that haven't done that much time, that may not be as you know, um, up in the age where they feel like they it's time for them to mature. So they're not reaching out to make those types of networks. So it's very difficult for somebody that's not doing it for themselves because the system is not going to do it for you. And if I didn't, if I, if I wasn't doing it on my, for myself while I was incarcerated or making those connections or building that social capital, then it would be very difficult for me right now trying to reach out to different organizations because, um, like, for example, some programs, um, you have to have, like, a certain level of consistency and discipline to continue going to like, there's one program that I was in where you had to wake up 
every morning, nine o'clock in the morning, dressed professionally in a professional attire. It's like an employment readiness program for 30 days straight. Most guys that I know won't be able to do that. Um, maybe because they don't want to, but like, I just say that to say that like it's certain stipulations, certain standards of certain programs out here, re-entry programs that um, you have to be, you just got to be really dedicated to wanting to succeed or just wanting to re-enter society successfully for you to go through the hurdles or make it through these programs. So, how can we change re-entry? Truly helping incarcerated people re-enter society requires radically shifting the types of programming offered in prisons, while also addressing the structural barriers that prevent formerly incarcerated people from full participation in daily life. Rather than focusing on short-lived re-entry programs, facilities could instead focus on educational and vocational training programs. By partnering with local schools and universities, detention facilities can offer programming that builds on academic skills new opportunities for employment, or allows incarcerated people who didn't have access to education to earn their GEDs. Professor Miller also told me about some of the programming that he's been involved with in prisons. Uh, in 2012, I started teaching a course, um, a philosophy course inside of Jessup Correctional Institution, where I was um, working with a friend, um, a guy named Daniel Levine, who was a professor at the University of Maryland. And the two of us uh, created a course devoted to uh, the thought of Hannah Arendt. And we read The Human Condition and a bunch of her essays. And we had about 32 students at the time who had taken other courses with other college faculty who would occasionally come in to, to offer classes. And one of the things that jumped out at me from the very beginning was how impressive these guys were, how uh, talented they were as readers of philosophical texts, how passionate they were about the ideas and arguments, um, how grateful they were that we were there and that we were offering our time. Um, but, you know, uh, basically the idea that stuck with me throughout was that my students, my incarcerated students were just the best students I'd ever had, and they made it a joy to teach classes inside. So started doing that early in 2012, um, and I didn't stop teaching at Jessup until um, last summer, right? Um, so until the summer of 2017, um, and then I immediately started teaching at a new jail. Only 22% of people incarcerated in state prisons have a high school education, and almost 20% of people incarcerated in state prisons haven't even attained 8th grade level education. Educational and vocational training programs open new doors and provide opportunities to incarcerated people who lacked education opportunities or dropped out of school because of external pressures. Participation in these educational programs has been declining since the 1990s. Not because incarcerated people don't want access to education. They do. But rather because states downsized their prison-based post-secondary and liberal arts programs due to lack of funding. These programs, already under siege since 1994 when Congress denied Pell Grants to fund higher education in prison, 
are very difficult to access today. The Institute for Higher Education Policy found that only 6% of incarcerated people are enrolled in vocational or academic post-secondary programs. These programs provide vital opportunities for incarcerated people to flourish once they re-enter society. Mark Howard told me a little bit about the programs and education initiatives he's been involved with to help re-entering citizens. For the last four years in prison education, uh, teaching in prison, uh, bringing students into prison, bringing faculty in for guest lectures. I did it for three years or so at the Jessup Correctional Institution, a maximum security prison in Maryland. And I've been doing it now for the last semester at the DC jail where we've started a Georgetown program called the Georgetown Prison Scholars Program at the DC jail. And it's something that I think is really inspiring, amazing, impressive to see people who often were deprived of uh, education the first time around, but who at some point into their incarceration discover the love of learning and of growth and transformation. And it's something that I think really helps prepare them to return to society. And I like this, I'm devoting my professional life and much of my personal life to really um, creating successful programs here at Georgetown that will help people incarcerated in the D.C. jail and potentially other prisons. Here's what Saquon Merritt told me about the college program that he was involved with during his incarceration. I was, I was, in, I was fortunate to be in the situation where the uh, jail I was at had a college program. That's more what I was, what I was into. But um, that college program at that time was only had room for about 30 guys. Mm-hmm. So though that was the program that was available that um, I, I engaged in. However, um, that now I'm only, you know, it's 30 guys out of a population of, I think, around 2,000. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the rest of the programs that they had available to us were um, mundane programs to me. You know, they had, um, you know, uh, substance, substance abuse, um, thinking for a change program, which is a program to try to get your you know, your thought patterns a little better. But however, uh, these programs aren't really effective. Um, they, they weren't really effective. You know, they, they were just a thing to do uh, to pass time, mm-hmm. you know, um, a way of kind of pacifying us. Yeah. Um, you know, you, had, you obviously you had your recreation gym and things like that. But uh, I, I look more towards uh, programs for reform. Mm-hmm. You know, I look more towards program for reform. That's why I gravitated towards the college program. But um, they didn't they didn't have these programs uh, exposed. A, a lot of programs exposed to the greater population. Right. I mean, they had, you know, different religious programs and things mm-hmm. like that. But far as programs that were actually going to get you prepared um, for for reentry or get you prepared to uh, um, transition your mm-hmm. former your former self um, from the person that you were that you know may have brought you to prison or your environment um, they, they didn't have really have those kind of programs yeah and um, I, I really think that that was that was something that you know I had a problem with mm-hmm. uh, being incarcerated I, I really had a problem with that because it seemed like uh, <laughs> seemed like exactly what it what it was that you know we it was ge- it was geared to just house us yeah not really correction not yeah. really you know try to correct us or try to uh um 
change our, you know, maybe our formal ways. It didn't give you an avenue. Marcus Lilly told me about some of the programming that he was involved with during his incarceration, the accessibility of that programming, and what types of programming he believes are effective for incarcerated people. It's, it's kind of a small group of people that gets access to the programs for a few reasons. One of them is oftentimes those programs have long have a long list where um cause racism we had to wait um sometimes you know you have a lot of younger guys that just don't want to do programming um and some of those programs I named are not effective in really like changing a person's perception because uh you know, the staff members that run certain programs are not really passionate and dedicated to, you know, they're not invested in the rehabilitation of these guys. So it's just like they there for a paycheck. And some of those groups might just be, you might, uh, a staff member just might ask one question and then the guys in a group, you know, just kind of ramble on without any guidance or any uh, facilitate true f- facilitation of the lesson. I've learned that most effective programs, and it's going to sound may sound biased, but the ones that I've been in that was effective was the ones that was ran by incarcerated citizens, and most of us were older guys that was in college. We was mentors. We kind of been through the same things that these younger guys went through and we would give them life lessons. Like we would tell our stories and I guess because we've been in their shoes and uh, we're well respected around the facility for being positive role models, you know, people that used to used to go for bad or live that life that really it's dedicated to transformers. So it's like some of those guys don't really see um, that type of image. You know, it's always people that's doing the same thing that they doing. But when you see somebody that really came from the same type of lifestyle that you came from, that's really trying to change, they have a tendency to listen to them a little more. So oftentimes they didn't really, they, they would challenge the, the, the social workers or the staff members that was running other programs, but like in our programs, we would, they would be more receptive and, uh, and kind of, uh, kind of sit down and really listen to what we were saying. Um, another, my, one of my issues had was with, with programs has always been the time frame. you know, they three months to six months. I mean, if you got a, uh, a hard head, you know, young male or young female that's thought she was a gangster or thought he was a gangster all his life, grew up in poverty, broken home, you know, his community is littered with violence, drug dealers, et cetera. This is all he or she had been seeing all her life. And her community or his community has conditioned him to believe that this is who he need to be or that he needs to attack every 
problem with violence or with aggression. You know, that's a six month to three month program is not gonna alter that. It can it may plant the seed, but I always wish that the programs were, you know, really centered on like um in an ideal in an ideal world it would be these incarcerated citizens would be, sit down with a social worker. The social worker would go over his childhood, his upbringing, uh, how his community was, et cetera, et cetera, to get a feel for his issues specifically. And once that is evaluated, then it would be a map, certain programs that's geared towards his specific issues. Maybe, uh, Anger management, thank you for a change. After he does anger management, he has to do thank you for a change. Then he has to do another program. But it's through the duration that he's locked up. So he's programming the whole time he's locked up, not just three months, six months. Then after that's over, he's just sitting around idle. And he's going back to the same tail where the same guys is doing the same ignorant thing. I always wish that if a guy had five years in prison, and he has five years of programming in prison. Marcus Lilly also told me some of his ideas for what helps people stay out of incarceration in the long term. It just education showed me that I ain't I, I don't have to be a gangster. I don't have to be a drug dealer. I don't have to settle for that lifestyle, which is really a death style. You know, I don't have to come out here and uh, fall victim to the recidivism rate. Like, uh, I can define my own reality. I can get a job. I can go to college. And I can work towards owning my own business. For me, education gave me that confidence. I remember at a point in time, I couldn't sit in a room full of college students and professors and feel sufficient enough to be able to add to the conversation or even elevate it, the conversation to a different level. Like, I have that confidence now. I mean, my hands stay raised in class. I sit at the front of my classes, and I'm outspoken, and I always feel like I have something to add to the conversation. Um, so definitely education. You have to really get a different perception of who you want to be in life. You know, get that that vision, you know, envision who you want to be and write down goals that will help you attain that vision. You know, work on yourself. Find out your weaknesses and your strengths and, you know, constantly work on yourself. Marcus Lilly shared some ideas with me about what kind of programs can better help reentering citizens as they transition back to life after incarceration. Um, that's a very good question. Uh, I, I feel like, and I don't say this uh, biasly, like more programs that's ran by incarcerated citizens that's inside all former incarcerated citizens 
maybe even a a, a collaboration of incarcerated citizens that's you know uh, actually changed, you know, transformed that criminal mentality into just you know a, a, a productive citizen mentality, if you want to say that. Link them with incarcerated, I mean, former incarcerated citizens who, you know, had that success story in a sense that came home and did what they had to do and is continuing to do what they have to do and link them to with the social workers and them running the groups together. So you had that link with, you had that network with, uh, 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 Institutions out in society, but you also have that mentor or that facilitator that been through what most of them incarcerated citizens have been through. So maybe you can get to them or talk to them in a different way that the typical social worker may not. Um, and a curriculum that's based on challenging the way that they think whether it's scenarios, like we would do things like in front of a friend program where we would create scenarios uh, based off of the latest thing in the news, like something in the news. I remember one group, uh, I think a, a lady, an older lady in a community had got shot um, in a crossfire. And we would just create scenarios to see how do they really think it's wrong? Um, what could they do differently? You know, why is this bad, et cetera. So we used a lot of scenarios. It was an interactive group where it wasn't just a lecture, but we wasn't just trying to drill the lesson into them. We would get them, we would engage the participants to see what, how they looked at the situation. Then we would just, create a list of questions and a list of lessons that would kind of help guide them to the, the objective of that specific lesson. So like definitely a, a interactive group and um, a longer period, you know, where they would be in that group, not just six months, not just three months, you know, something that's, it's, it's, it's continued. It's a it's it's continuity to it. Uh, I would definitely try to see that. Detention facilities could also provide robust drug and alcohol treatment programs. In 2010, the National Center on Addiction and Substance Abuse found that 65% of people incarcerated in America meet the medical criteria for substance abuse addiction. At the same time, only 11% of incarcerated people have ever received treatment for that addiction. The untreated abuse of drugs and alcohol only makes the reentry process more difficult. The expectation that incarcerated people remain sober and clean during probation and parole, while well-intentioned, is very difficult for drug addicts who lack access to abuse treatment programs. Jails and prisons could expand substance abuse treatment programs, providing opportunities for individuals to break their substance dependence.
These programs could make it possible for formerly incarcerated people to re-enter society successfully. Drug treatment programs would also address one of the factors that scholar Danielle Allen identifies as a driving force of mass incarceration. In her book, Cuz, she identified the massive illegal drug trade and associated gangs, policing, and amount of money expended on drugs in America, which make up what she calls the Paris state, a massive nexus of actors, economic, social, and political forces that are tangled up in the drug trade. By providing the tools that incarcerated people need to break addiction, policymakers can more directly undermine the parastate. While this method of addressing drug trade treats the symptom instead of the root cause, expanding drug treatment programs would drastically improve life for many of the people most affected by the criminal justice system. Legislators and detention center staff could also expand therapy programs in jails and prisons. Mental illness is extremely common among incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Almost a quarter of people incarcerated in state prisons have a recent history of mental health issues, and in 2012, there were 10 times more people with severe mental illness in U.S. prisons and jails than there were people with those same illnesses in state psychiatric hospitals. Moreover, psychiatric symptoms are nearly twice as common among formerly incarcerated men than the general population, and time in prison increases the prevalence of mood disorders like bipolar disorder and major depression among formerly incarcerated people. The mental illnesses associated with time spent in prison can affect an individual for the rest of their life and represent major stumbling blocks to their long-term well-being. Programs like cognitive behavioral therapy, which empowers individuals to become conscious of their thoughts and behavior, then to make positive changes to those thoughts and behavior, would be extremely beneficial to offer in detention centers. This psychotherapy has significantly improved the reentry process when it's been offered to incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people. Cognitive behavioral therapy can help establish patterns of positive thinking that improve quality of life for formerly incarcerated people and all people. Providing therapy programs to incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people gives them the opportunity to develop healthy emotional coping mechanisms, relieve some of the emotional and mental trauma of incarceration, and reduces the likelihood that incarcerated people will experience long-term or lifelong mental health issues. Many of the barriers to long-term success for formerly incarcerated people could be addressed through state and federal policy. Restoring access to housing, food stamps, voting, and other rights enjoyed by American citizens would be a great first step to reducing the discrimination that formerly incarcerated people face. If state and local governments recognized the long-term disadvantage that a formerly incarcerated person faces, they could also address that disadvantage by redesigning parole and probation systems to best serve the needs of people within those systems, reducing unrealistic employment expectations, or referring people who violate parole to counseling and programming rather than back into the prison system. Many states have already taken the first steps towards addressing some of the struggles of reentry. In 2017, 23 states enacted laws aimed at reducing barriers for formerly incarcerated people in the workplace and beyond. Many of these laws reduced the extent to which employers could learn about applicants' criminal backgrounds, and 10 states enacted statewide ban-the-box laws. States like Connecticut have also started to invest in job training and cognitive behavioral therapy programs for formerly incarcerated people, supporting their reentry process in areas from emotional health to job readiness. Programs like Emerge Connecticut, which provides these types of therapeutic and vocational programs in the city of New Haven, 
provide the vital resources that allow formerly incarcerated people to flourish after their release. But there's still much more work to be done. Legislators could transform systems of parole and probation so that they're more realistically aligned with employment opportunities and social realities in neighborhoods where formerly incarcerated people live. They could expand vocational training and education programs, as well as therapy offerings and detention facilities. All of these initiatives come down to recognizing the systemic barriers formerly incarcerated people face and providing them with the necessary tools to combat those barriers, not exacerbating the difficulties they face after they re-enter society. Successful re-entry and rehabilitation programs must treat incarcerated people like people. They must provide them with opportunities to flourish, not stifle their growth. Marcus Lilly urged our listeners to think critically about the end result of incarceration and what reentry experiences would actually be like for people leaving incarceration. I'd like to share his words with you now. Uh, this is my philosophy, you know. The same, the same guy that we lock up or the same female that this country locks up. Those in a prison or a jail that isn't given the incentive to participate in these programs, whether it's college-based programs or whether it's uh, 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 thank you for a change. And also with that, the restructuring of these programs so they can really be centered and geared towards true rehabilitation and not just punishment. Um, so those type of programs are not given incentive to go to these programs through the duration of the incarceration and really, you know, given the opportunity, a true opportunity of rehabilitation are the same people that re-enter in our community with the same mindset. And then we blame the system. I mean, excuse me, we blame that individual for committing another crime when he really wasn't never given any skills or any new uh, uh, ways to think why he was incarcerated. He was just sitting around rotting in prison doing time being punished for something that he did maybe five years ago. So, and then when he is released, he's restricted in employment, restricted in certain educational avenues restricted in housing restricted the voting thing is getting better now but in certain states he's restricted in voting uh so he's 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 disempowered and more than likely he's gonna commit a new crime so for the people that run the system the law officials the wardens you know they indirectly contribute to further crimes in our community because you had the power to help educate this person that you had locked up, this human being that you, your system is structured to dehumanize. You have the opportunity to restructure the, the system and have it centered on helping this human being re-enter society successfully to be a, a, a productive citizen. So it won't be no further crimes. So when this guy does re-enter society and it, it it was I'm not using this case specifically, just an example. Like it was a case that I heard about a long time ago. I think the guys robbed like a 
I think she was like a politician or a politician family member. He smacked her with the gun, et cetera. But, and I believe those guys was locked up before. So I, I'm just using this example. Just, just an example. Um, but they, they put their faces on the news, public enemy, you know, and they just placed the blame on them. But you had them locked up and you didn't help change them. So, like, I always make the analogy. It's kind of getting old now. I'm going to have to find a new analogy. It's, it's the Spider-Man analogy, though. Um, when Spider-Man was tired of being Spider-Man, he didn't want to use his powers. He went in the store, and the guy was robbing the store. He didn't stop the guy from robbing the store. Later on that evening, the guy did something to his uncle. He shot his uncle and killed his uncle. Spider-Man felt so guilty. You know, but he had the opportunity to use his power. Like law officials, they had the opportunity to use that power to restructure the system, prison reform, have it centered on rehabilitation, but they're not using that power. So when the recidivism rate flies up the sky, you know, they don't feel guilty about it. They don't feel like they're indirectly contributing to these crimes but in my perception they is because you have the power to, to alter the system but you're not using it whether it be for financial reasons or just um insidious reasons you know no one is no one is not affected by the crimes in our community you know injustice in one place is injustice everywhere Thanks for listening to the fourth episode of Reformed. In the next episode, we'll discuss two theoretical frameworks for understanding mass incarceration, Foucault's panopticon and the academic concept of a moral panic. If you're interested in reading more about some of the subjects covered on today's show, check out Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow and Rethinking Corrections, a collection of essays edited by Lior Gideon and Hung Ensung. You might also enjoy reading Finding College by Way of Prison, an article by Marcus Lilly, who you heard in today's interviews, that was published as part of the Marshall Project. It's available online, and we've got a link to it in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you to the band Broke for Free for the music used in the making of today's episode. As always, our theme song is Broke for Free's track XXV. You also heard samples from their songs Golden Hour and A Year. Check them out online.